Well, good morning, church family. <clears throat> bah humbug. That's the saying that marked a man named Ebenezer Scrooge, the central character in Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. And because some of you felt like free to celebrate Christmas in October this year, I feel free to give an illustration in January regarding Christmas. Scrooge is a man who had everything, wealth, power, status. And yet when you get to know Scrooge in that story, he was a miserable man. People were but a nuisance to his desires. He happily disadvantaged others if it meant an advantage for him. And his obsession with money really robbed him of enjoying the many good gifts that God would put in his life, things like food or friendship or a holiday. But as the story goes, as Charles Dickens tells it, Scrooge is then visited by three ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past and present and then future. And if you know the story, you know that it's the ghost of the future that really gets his attention. Scrooge in that moment has a chance to peek into the future and see the trajectory of his life and where it's headed. And when he wakes up from this, 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 this chance to see his future, he has a chance to then change the course of his life so he doesn't end up where the ghost of future was telling him he was headed. Friends, what if, what if you had a chance to have a peek or a glimpse into the future for your life, what difference would it make? Well, if you will, please turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. We've been looking at this book the last several weeks as a church family. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week in chapter 2. We're going to go back and revisit a couple of verses, in, starting in verse 4, um, but in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. We've been, as I said, we've been looking at this book, and Habakkuk, we learned, is a prophet in the Old Testament. He was ministering to the, the, northern, uh, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah in the 7th century B.C., and part of, the, part of the thing that was motivating him was that he was appalled. He was disgusted by the violence and the injustice and the, and the wickedness that was rampant among the people of God in God's house in Judah. And so the prophet cries out to God, God, do something about this rampant wickedness that is here. You need, to re- you need to do something to remove the stain of this sin in your people. God's answer to the prophet was that he was doing something, that he was actually raising up the nation of Babylon as a reproof to correct Judah's rampant sin problem. But as we saw last week, the problem for Habakkuk was that he knew that Babylon was wicked themselves. He was a ruthless nation. They were the bad guys. And so Habakkuk is left wrestling with what God is doing. How could God use somebody as crooked and as corrupt as Babylon to do this work of correction? He doesn't know. He doesn't, he's, he's struggling, trying to make sense of what God is doing. Now, it's good for us to note that God was not God is not obligated to give Habakkuk an answer. And if you're familiar with Job, another Old Testament book, Job suffered and he didn't get, he did not get an explanation when he asked why. The only explanation he got from God was that I'm God and you're not. 
And that was enough for Job. But in Habakkuk's case, God actually provides additional information. Essentially, what we're going to see him doing with a prophet today is he invites Habakkuk. He says, come on, come on up here. I want, I want you to see things from my perspective. I want, you to, I want to show you a glimpse of the future. I want to show you the end of things. And what Habakkuk saw, he records so that we can see today. So the question I want us to ask this morning as we consider God's Word is, what difference does knowing the end make on how we live today? If God's going to show us a glimpse of the future in Habakkuk 2, what difference does knowing how it end make on how we live today? Here's, here's the plan for how, what I want to do this morning. I want us to walk through the text. We're going to just going to walk through what Habakkuk's saying and we're going to circle back and think through two different groups of people, how this affects, what, what's the so what? How should we live differently in light of knowing the end? So with that in mind, let's pick it up where we left off last week in verse 4. Quick review, verse 4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's answer. Verse 5, moreover, wine is a traitor and an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, the place of death. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So again, we saw this last week, but verse 4 reminds us that there's, there's two and only two ways to live. There's no middle road here. You either trust God or you trust yourself. You either trust God or you don't trust him. There's no middle way here. And so the proud who don't trust God, well, they assume that they can make it on their, their own. They don't need to trust God. But as we're reminded in verse 4, to, to challenge the creator of the universe and think that you can win reveals a brokenness in that person. It reveals that there's something not right in their soul. Something's not upright in their soul to think that. When people created by God for God choose a path apart from God, it leaves them discontent. That's what, that's what verse 5 shows us. The language that it uses there is it, it, that person is never at rest. The arrogant, the proud never have enough. They're, not, they're discontent because they're, they're going away from the one God who can make them content. So instead of looking to God for their satisfaction and their joy and their contentment, they look to the next thing, thinking that if I just have that, that will make me happy. But it's like drinking salt water. It only makes you more thirsty, which explains why the proud, like Babylon, keep taking and taking and taking. They just, they devour nations. They never have enough. So having that idea of the proud in mind, God then takes Habakkuk by the hand into the future to show them, to show him and us the end of the proud, the future. Look at verse 6 again. He says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. 
Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations and all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. I want us to notice one of the words here in verse 6. It's that word, woe, right? W-O-E, right? And it's, it's an important word in our text. We're going to see it five times in our text this morning. Verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, and then verse 15, and then verse 19. Five times. And I, 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 I would be surprised if you used woe in your normal course of speech this past week. We don't, it's not a, a, a common word for us, so it's good for us to pause and say, what does that word mean here, right? Well, woe is a word that can express grief or sorrow, such as when we use the English phrase, woe is me, right? But as you read through the Old Testament, that word woe is often used to express lament or sorrow in the context of a funeral, And I think that's the idea that is going on behind these five woes. We're meant to imagine a funeral service with these five woes expressing lament or sorrow. So what what we see here is that Habakkuk is taken into the future and he's seeing a future funeral. The future funeral of the proud. The funeral for the Babylonians who will terrorize the people of God in Judah. But interestingly enough, the, the funeral is not so much a lament as it is a mockery of the proud. Look again at verse 6. He says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? Some translations will use the word mockery. It's this idea that the, the, the taunting, the people who are taunting at this funeral are the people who were once captured defeated and terrorized by the proud nations like Babylon. And so these five separate woes that we're going to see this morning remind the person who is living by faith, who's waiting on God, trying to make sense of what's going on in the world around them. These five woes are a reminder that there is an end to the proud. There is an end to their terror. God will hold them accountable and their cruelty will come to an end. Now this first woe that we see here in verses 6 through 8 highlights the greed that characterizes the proud. Right? The, the proud can become big and powerful and so big and so powerful that they assume they can just take and take and take whatever they want and get away with it. That they're above accountability. I mean, they are the ones in charge a lot of the times. And what we've seen so far is that, that the idea of justice for the proud is corrupted. It's twisted. Right and wrong aren't determined by God's word. For the proud and the powerful, right and wrong are determined by what they think is right. Might makes right for them. If I can get away with it, it must be right. If it advantages me, it must be right. And so for those who have been plundered and terrorized by the proud Babylonians, there, there would be moments in time as they're waiting for justice that they would see, man, it, just, it looks like they just get away with it. It looks like they are above accountability. 
But this future glimpse in, into this funeral for the proud is a reminder that they, they won't get away with it. Verse 7, will not your debtors, your creditors, suddenly arise? The fact that it's sudden suggests that they were self-deceived, that they were above, a, they were, they were above accountability. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> there's accountability. And those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoil for them. In other words, what, what he's saying at the funeral is one day the tables will turn. The plunderer will become the plundered. They would become the spoil of the ones that they have wronged. Verse 9, we see the second woe. Verse 9 says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Now in this second woe that we see at this future funeral, it's building on the first woe. So again, we see the proud Uh, takes evil gain for their house. That's similar to the first woe. But the focus in this second woe is more on the motivation. What was motivating them for taking and taking and taking this evil gain? Why is he doing this? Well, the purpose that's stated in the middle of verse 9 tells us. Why is he doing this? Look at the middle of verse 9. To set his nest on high. To be safe from the reach of harm. In other words, one of the things that's motivating this taking and taking and taking is this idea of security. The proud assumes that with enough money and the right tools and the right muscle, they can guarantee their safety and the safety of their family. They can live without fear in this world. They can live beyond the reach of harm, as verse 9 says. Now, in one sense, that's true. Money can provide security. Just real practically speaking, if you have money in your bank, you don't have to worry about your transmission or your water heater breaking down. If your water heater breaks down, if your transmission breaks down, it's not a reason for panic because all you got to do is dip it into the bank account, buy a new water heater, buy a new transmission, problem solved. No need for panic. Security from having money. And before long, though, if you have enough money and enough security in that, you begin to feel self-sufficient. You begin to feel safe from life's harm. Safe because of the security that money brings. And Proverbs, in a sense, affirms that. Proverbs 18.11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. But it ends this way, and like a high wall in his imagination. So money, yes, can be a strong city. It can provide security. But as Proverbs 18.11 reminds us, without God, that security is but a mirage in our imagination. And Habakkuk sees that mirage exposed for what it is, at this funeral. If Babylon thought they were above the law, that they were exempt from the accountability, maybe they were exempt from accountability because they killed off all the eyewitnesses. Who's going to witness against me in the court of law? 
Verse 11 reminds us, the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. God does not need any eyewitnesses. He can make the house which they've built with that evil cry out against them. Does that sound familiar? In the New Testament, Jesus told the Pharisees, who were, who, the Pharisees were telling Jesus as he came into Jerusalem, they, they were proclaiming Jesus as king. And the Pharisees said, silence them! And Jesus said, if I tell them to be quiet, the stones will cry out. In other words, what he's saying is that God's agenda, what God is doing in this world, is unstoppable. You can try to silence the witnesses, but the house itself that the proud has built with wickedness will, talk, will testify against them. Guilty! And God the judge will hear and hold them accountable, and they in the end will die in shame. Those that the world once envied, feared, and thought untouchable will at their funeral be pitied. Verse 12, the third woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We can summarize this third woe here in verses 12 through 14 as the proud's search for their own glory. Proud is search for their own glory. It's kind of like the, the folks that were trying to build a tower in Babel The proud wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be God. They wanted to be like God. And if stepping on the backs of others is what it takes to build this tower, to make a name for myself, so be it. That's the cost of doing business. The proud is like the wicked. They are willing to disadvantage others if it means the advantage of them. But again, Habakkuk at this funeral sees their end. The proud may build a city, a nation, an empire on the backs of others, and they may build a pretty impressive empire. They may seem untouchable. But God is in charge, not the proud. Therefore, verse 12 says, Woe, woe to him. Woe to him who builds a town of blood and founds a city on iniquity. Friends, all these labors, all these impressive cities and, 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 and works that is built with, with, on the backs of others and, the, and, and with blood, it looks impressive, but all labor apart from God's help. All labor that is aimed at the glory of man and not the glory of God is futile. You can build it up, but it's going to burn down. That's what he's saying in verse 13. It's a grasping after the wind. And these who labor for their own glory are laboring in a way that they weary themselves for nothing. Why? Why is 
glory-seeking for self? Why is name-building for self all in vain? Why is it a grasping after the wind? Well, verse 14 makes clear why it's a grasping after the wind. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will not be filled with the knowledge of the glory of man. The earth will, this is God's promise, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, the truth about who God is and all his characteristics and attributes. Human empires glorify man, but God will not give his glory to another. God's glory, not man's, will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Friends, we like to think that if God spoke, we'd listen. That man would change his or her ways if God actually spoke and told them to. We would like to think that, right? Well, in verse 14, God is speaking. God is telling the nations. God is telling his people, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. So then why would Babylon, who's listening in, why would Babylon not change course? I doubt Nebuchadnezzar would like, oh man, Habakkuk's saying that this is going to happen. I better change my ways. It, history says he didn't. Why didn't he listen? God is speaking. Because of pride. Romans 1, Paul says that we suppress the truth about God in our unrighteousness. It's not that God is silent. God is speaking through his creation, through his word. God is speaking. It's not that he's silent. It's just that we don't want to listen. And so we suppress the truth about God in our unrighteousness. We don't want God to be God. Pride keeps people from changing course when they're headed for destruction. Friends, when dark days leave us feeling desperate, when dark days leave us crying out to God in desperation, when dark days and trials humble us, don't despise the Lord's discipline. Far better for us to see our need for God and cry out to him than to remain comfortable on a road that leads to hell. Verse 15, the fourth woe. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. This cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. I think one way we can summarize what's going on in this fourth woe, verses 15 through 17, is the idea of escape right? When, when, when the proud are described in verse 5, we're told that they would get drunk to cover the emptiness or the nagging discontentment that they had. But instead of drinking alone, when we get to verse 15, we realize they insist on others drinking with them. 
That's one of the, the, the things about the depravity of sin. It's not enough for us just to sin on our own. We have to pull others in with us. Notice in verse 15, the proud makes his neighbors drink. It doesn't matter if the neighbors don't want to drink with the Babylonians. The Babylonians are bullies. And so if you refuse to get drunk with them, they will just simply pour out their wrath upon you and make you drunk. Much like David got Uriah drunk when he was trying to cover up what he did with his wife. Friends, getting others to join in sin with us is one of the ways that humans normalize sin in order to cover up, cover up the shame of what we're doing. We feel, we feel a little bit better about our sin. But the other reason I think we try to pull other people in into, into, into the drunkenness that we see here in the text is the Babylonians were pulling others to drink with them is because of sex. It says, in order to gaze at their nakedness, just read through the scriptures or look around at human history. Drunkenness and sexual sin often go together. And I think part of the reason for that is it's easy for us to use pleasure, the pleasure of drunkenness or the pleasure of sex, as a means of escape from life's harsh realities. But again, at the funeral, God pulls back the curtain into the future and shows the, the funeral for the proud Habakkuk sees the proud bully will get a taste of their own medicine. Notice in verse 16, the cup in the Lord's right hand. He will drink from the cup that's in the Lord's right hand. Well, what's the cup? Well, in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, the cup that's in the Lord's hand is, a, is often used as a symbol to, to symbolize the wrath of God. So Babylon is out there getting drunk and making others drunk with their cup, but in the end, they will drink the cup of God's wrath. As they forced others to drink, they will be forced to drink the cup of God's wrath, and their nakedness will be exposed to their shame in the end. Verse 18, we see the fifth and final woe. Verse 18, what prophet is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. The fifth and final woe that we see here at this funeral has to do with idolatry. Idolatry is trusting something other than God. Valuing it, building our life around it, setting our heart upon it, even something that's good. Because we trust it to help us rather than God. Now, remember what the Babylonians were worshiping, what they were trusting. Back in chapter 1, verse 11, we were told their own might was their God. So Babylon is powerful. Worldly speaking, they have a reason to be proud. They made nations tremble. They wiped out any who opposed them. Their God, their own might, taught them that they could do anything. It led them to believe that they were in charge, 
that they didn't need God. But again, at the funeral of the proud, Habakkuk sees that anything that we trust in other than God, including powerful nations like Babylon, anything we trust in other than God is, verse 18, a teacher of lies. It makes promises of deliverance, of help, of satisfaction, of whatever you fill in the blank in, and it's a teacher of lies. Friends, when the world seems to be falling apart and things don't make sense, when things go well for the wicked, it's hard to believe that. But that's why God reminds Habakkuk, as he does in verse 4, that the righteous shall live by their faith. All right. So we've had a chance to walk through what we see, these five woes at this future funeral service for the proud. But what I want us to do now is go back up and think through, okay, what difference does knowing the future make? What difference does knowing the future make? Verse 4 reminds us again that there's two ways to live. We either trust God or we trust ourselves. So what I want us to first of all do is, okay, ask the question, what difference does knowing the end make for someone who's trusting themselves? Someone who's not, who's not a follower of, of, of Christ, who who's living by sight, who's not sure they want to jump in with God yet, so they're just they're kind of plugging along. What difference does knowing the end, as revealed here in God's Word, make for them? Well, friends, if you're, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, as we say almost every week, we are so glad that you're here with us. You are always welcome at this church. You've come to the right place. You may have thought, though, uh, about pride. You may have thought of self-reliance as a good thing. You may have thought of pride as a virtue to, to seek after, something to strive for. And now pride is being talked about differently in God's Word. The problem with pride is that when it comes to your standing before God, we have nothing to be proud of. Pride looks at the gifts of God like food or sex or money and says, I'd rather have these things these gifts of God, rather than having God. These things are more valuable than God himself. And in order to keep God from telling us how to live our lives, we put ourselves on the throne as ruler so that we can self-rule. But pride that dethrones God leaves us in a bad position because, again, as verse 14 tells us, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God the Lord. That's a promise from the creator of the universe. So we can ignore that reality, we can deny that reality, but it's going to happen. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. And as we've seen today in Habakkuk, because God is good, he will punish all sin, including your sin and mine. And so if we proudly stand before a holy God on our own good works, the only thing that we can say that we know we deserve is to drink the cup of God's righteous wrath against wickedness that we are guilty of. The good news of Christianity is that God has made a way for us so we don't have to drink that cup of God's wrath. Jesus came 
fully God and fully man. He lived the perfect life that you and I failed to live so that when he died on the cross, he was not dying for his own sin. He drank the cup of God's wrath, not for his sin, but ours. He died as a substitute for anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in him alone. Jesus died for our sin. And on the third day, he got up from the dead as evidence that his payment for sin was sufficient. The work was complete. It was done. The only thing that was left for us is to receive that gift, to turn from our sin and to trust in Christ. And if you do, my friend, what you will find is that the cup of God's wrath is empty because Jesus has drank it down to its bottom. He's emptied the cup for you in his love for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's only acceptance and forgiveness in Christ. And so my non-Christian friend, I urge you today, turn from your sin. Turn from your sin that lies to you and trust in Christ who can save you. If you have questions about that, talk to me, talk to any of the pastors, talk to any of the, any of the members here at this church, talk to a Christian friend and ask what, they, what you can do to receive that gift today. Friends, God has taken the prophet Habakkuk by his hand and with us, we have a glimpse into the future funeral of the proud. We see their end. But we might ask ourselves, okay, what, what good does that do? I mean, it's like telling the sufferer, be patient, the tyrant will die someday. What good does that do? When in reality, we know that oftentimes the bully outlives the victim. What good does that do? Well, we should also ask the question, what difference does knowing the end make for those who are walking by faith then? Because walking by faith means waiting on God, waiting for his justice, waiting for his, him to keep his word. So what difference does knowing the end make for those who are walking by faith? In his commentary on the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, George Adam Smith talks about the atheism of force and the atheism of fear. And there's enough overlap with what's happening in Isaiah and in Habakkuk that I think those categories that, that George Adam Smith uses actually really helps us here in Habakkuk too. So knowing the end keeps us as a church from falling prey to the atheism of fear. When a nation like Babylon achieves enough power to boss the rest of the world around, there's a great danger for the rest of the world to begin to deify or idolize the power that they hold. Because we watch nations like Babylon or powerful people work and get things done, and we become impressed, and we begin to assume that the solution to the problems of our day is where that power lies. That the only real power is what they possess. And we fall into the atheism of force. Listen, church, it's possible for us to go to church and bear the name of Christ and desire to walk by faith and yet to pick up the tools of the proud that deny the existence of God. It's possible for us to be Christian in name, 
but to function in our day-to-day decisions to live like an atheist. As if the only kind of strength, the only kind of power that really matters is the strength that Babylon holds. That's the atheism of force. And church, we need to be vigilant to guard our hearts from believing and falling into the atheism of force. In and of ourselves, in and of of themselves, the first four woes are really harmless if you take a look at them. Because he's talking about ownership of, of, you know, you own certain things, or security, or building a city, or drinking a glass of wine. In and of themselves, all those things are harmless. Here's the problem, though. A sinful heart can turn a good thing into an ultimate thing very easily. And in that sense, the the fifth woe of idolatry defines all the other four woes. Again, an idol is anything that is more important to us than God, anything that absorbs our heart and imagination more than God, anything that we seek to give us what only God can give us. That's an idol. So we can make an idol out of a lot of things in this life. And it's easy for us as church-going folks to look at Babylon and think, well, not me. I've got no problem with God. I'm at church today. I don't have any idols in my house. But again, it's possible, the subtlety of idolatry is it's possible to dress up idolatry with religion so that it goes undetected in our hearts, and we need to be aware of that. The atheism of force reminds us that whatever appears to dominate history, demand our wonder and awe, and make God seem insignificant or out of date, that's our Babylon. That's our idol that leads us into the atheism of fear or force. So just to check our hearts real briefly, let's, let's walk really quickly through the four woes and see if perhaps those, that, that, that atheism has perhaps crept into our own hearts. Think back to woe number one, the woe of greed, right? Materialism is a hard thing to detect, especially for us living in America, because on a global standard, most of us are wealthy. Is it possible, though, church, that, our, that we're heaping up possessions because we're looking for these things to satisfy us, as only God can. I can't answer that for you, but it's a good thing for us to pray about. Is it, are there ways that we're looking to the clothes that we wear, the cars that we drive, the houses or neighborhoods we live in? Are we in any way looking for those things to define us, our significance, our worth, our value, rather than letting God determine our worth, significance, and value? Beware of that greed. Or think of the second woe, the woe that has to do with security. Again, don't, don't misunderstand this. It's not wrong for us to lock our doors or to wear a safety belt when you get in the car, but there are things that we are tempted to look to other than to God that we are looking to keep us safe. There are things that we rely upon other than God to keep us safe from the reach of harm as verse 9 says. Friends, what is it that your heart looks to, has been looking to, is longing for to keep you safe from harm? Lots of options. Our hearts are idle factories. 
Let me name one suggestion. This last election year has been a nightmare. There have been people on the right and there have been people on the left that have treated this year's election as if it's the most important thing in the world. Now, should we care? Yes. Should we work and be involved to work for a better government? Yes. But we must beware of the atheism of force, of thinking that political power is the only kind of power at work in our world today, as if it's the only kind of power that really matters, such that we cannot stop thinking about, obsessing over political power, or making politics a test of our fellowship as a church. As one writer has written about political idolatry, he said, when we center our lives on an idol, we become dependent on it. If our idol is threatened in any way, our response is panic. We don't say, what a shame or how difficult, but rather we say, this is the end, there is no hope. This may be a reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. They have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once was reserved for God and the work of the gospel. They believe that if their policies and people are not in power, then everything will fall apart. Do you hear the atheism of force in that idolatry? The increasing political polarization and bitterness that we see in U.S. politics today is a sign that we have made political activism into a form of religion. But church, again, remember what this woe is teaching us. God is on his throne. God is our source of security. He is the one that we look to, not anything else. Anything else is but a teacher of lies. Or or consider the third woe, this search to make a name for ourselves, the search for self-glory. You know, wanting a good reputation, good. But obsessing over how people think about you or see you or making yourself weary in an effort to make a name for yourself or to go online and get as many likes as possible, that's a whole other story. It might be that we're falling into idolatry in that sense, the idolatry of seeking glory for ourselves. And whether by gossip or cold indifference toward others or selfishness, we need to ask ourselves, are there ways that I have been willing to disadvantage others, to advantage myself and make a name for myself? We're not just talking about a global scale or a national scale. It can also happen at a personal, relational scale as well. Or think about the fourth woe of escape. Nothing wrong with taking a vacation, nothing wrong with taking a nap, nothing wrong with having a glass of wine, but do you find yourself running to these things as an escape? Going to them rather than going to God? Or have you involved others in your attempt to escape from life's harsh realities in order to make yourself feel better about your sin? Greed, security, glory, escape. These four woes are all forms of idols or idolatry. The fifth woe. And whatever Babylon or idol we're tempted to run to instead of God, what this text is teaching us is that that idol is a dead end. 
It is a teacher of lies. Seeing the future funeral of the proud is God's gracious, merciful warning to drop the tools of the proud and to instead walk by faith and not by sight. To wait upon God, to believe his promises, and to bank our lives on his promises by acting on them. Because God is at work, and his power is an unrivaled power. Friends, the other side of the atheism of force is the atheism of fear. And it's another lie that we need to guard against. We, we might read our Bibles, our Bibles that tell us that God will punish the wicked, and we might say, Amen, Habakkuk. But then we look around, then we look around the world and our, our reality that we live in, and we realize that most reported crimes in America go unsolved, which means that a lot of evil goes unpunished. We look around and realize that many will die never seeing the wrong made right. We see churches struggle. We see the proud prosper. And dark days seem to linger on and on and on. And in that moment, and it's easy to think of all the examples of, of, of how good seems to lose and evil seems to run rampant. And the believer who has been wronged or abused or discriminated against or cheated and has to wait upon God, that believer might be tempted with the atheism of fear. The atheism of fear hears God's promise. I will judge the wicked. I will make this right. But then live as if God didn't promise it and live as if God doesn't exist, and live as if there's not a judge on the throne. And that person may be tempted to become cynical or bitter or angry or anxious or fearful because it seems like God's distant while the proud and the wicked are in charge. But friends, I think one encouragement that this text offers is something that world history confirms So, for a moment, dust off your history books with me and recall any of the number of world empires that have existed in human history. The Assyrian, Babylonian, Roman, Ottoman, British. You can name any of the world empires that you want to think of. These empires controlled vast parts of the globe. They possessed immense power. They often smashed those who opposed them. And for those who lived under their rule, under their thumb, it may have felt in that moment like this is the end of the world. And the atheism of force and the atheism of fear said that the power of wickedness is unbeatable. You might as well give up and join the world. but why do the righteous persevere? Why, do the church, why does the church still exist today? Why haven't the forces of evil snuffed out all their opposition? I would suggest it's because there's something else going on in this world than those who seem with our eyes to be in charge. And that something else is God. 
Our God is on his throne. Our God is in charge, and his power is greater than armies, bombs, bribery, and torture. As one writer notes, it is he who thwarts the efforts of the wicked and gives the righteous another kind of power, a power that does not come from this world, a power that enables them to endure. Do we have examples of this? All over the Bible. All over human history. Let me name one example, though, the experience of blacks living in America. Years ago, years of slavery, years of living under Jim Crow law would tempt any African American with the atheism of fear. But for many African Americans, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been a steady reminder that the atheism of fear is a lie. I.T. Bradley, who was a black preacher in Akron, Ohio, put it this way in his sermon that he preached in 1971. You are going to human communities and calling it urban renewal. You are land grabbing, putting folks out of homes. Then you closed up your schools and wouldn't let them go in. And then you moved out in the suburbs and wouldn't let them cross that track. And he kept on saying, there's a brighter day coming by and by. Every now and then he would, hear, he would go down in his heart and he would say, up above my head, I hear the music in the air. There must be a God somewhere. You told him that he was a nobody. But he kept on saying, I'm a child of the king. I'm a child of the king. Jesus is my savior. I am a child of the king. You made your security in your army. You made your security in your national guard. And we kept on singing, he's got the whole world in his hand. He's got the little bitty baby in his hand. And he's got me and you, brother, in his hand. That calm, that serenity, does not come from a pain-free life or a, an existence where we understand everything that's going on in the world around us. That calm, that serenity comes by trusting God, by walking by faith, by taking God at his word, that he is working his plan and he will one day right every wrong, even though we can't make sense of this world sometimes or what God is doing. It's the serenity that Habakkuk talks about and ends chapter 2 with in verse 20. Yes, the idols that people worship, they're there. They may look powerful, but they cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot speak, they cannot save, they are useless. But, verse 20, the Lord, he is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Church, God is in his temple. God is on his throne. And one day, one day, every, every, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We either humble ourselves now and glory in him now or our knees will be broken on that day of judgment and we will bow and confess that he is Lord. The earth will, not maybe, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Now listen, our, our hope is not quite, in the end, we win. Our hope rather is, in the end, God wins. And it's a reminder that we've all sinned, every one of us. 
We all fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, our salvation, our hope of victory, is not a reason for any of us to boast in ourselves. It is a reason today to boast in Jesus Christ, the one in whom we take refuge, the one who redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Amen and amen. Let's pray together.